0: For Where Hollywood Eyes, here's Bob and Suzanne.
1: Chicken Joke. I'm Mrs. Cleaver. From
0: um, Television City in Hollywood. Boy, the
1: way Glenn Miller plays. repeating. we're not in Kansas anymore. We're on a mission from God. hi Run, Forrest, run! We can rebuild him. We have the technology. You had me at hello. I don't
0: know Nanu, nanu. Baby, you're a great. Mm.
1: I'm not going to be ignored. Here comes
0: the judge. Go ahead.
1: Make my day. I got nowhere else to go! Small cabin. Black fashion. There's anything wrong with her. You can't handle the truth. I'm not an actor. I'm a movie star. That's the story of my life. No respect. I don't get no respect at all. I'm the dude.
0: I think this is
2: the beginning of a beautiful friendship.
0: And now for something completely different.
2: Yes, no! Business like show, business like no
0: business, I know, everything about it. Welcome to
2: Where Hollywood Hides. This is podcast episode number 45. My name is Bob McCullough.
0: And my name is Suzanne Herrera-McCullough.
2: You're in a good mood today. I am.
0: 45. We're almost to 50.
2: We are. We are. Today's exciting because we're talking to an old friend of mine, a blast from the past, one of the original cast members of Falcon Crest who has become a major force in the acting world. Now, before we get started, let's not forget to remind everybody, go to the website at wherehollywoodhides.com, where you'll be able to pick up our hardcover full-color book, Where Hollywood Hides Santa Barbara, Celebrities in Paradise, and get free shipping. Also at the website, you'll see show notes on every single one of our interview episodes. And
0: I am constantly amazed how many people from around the world... Are ordering our book?
2: I think it's the free shipping. I mean, if you're in Australia, no, no
0: it's the book. You, it's the okay, book.
2: well, if you're in Australia and you can get free shipping, that's a pretty good deal.
0: Oh, you're such a deal maker.
2: Well, so a lot of our customers do come from outside the U- U.S. and uh, they do take advantage of that free shipping offer. So, just want to remind everybody that's probably the best place to buy the book. You can also find it at Amazon.com. Uh, speaking of Amazon, you know, if you go to the website, you will see a number of Amazon banners where you can pick up practically anything you've ever wanted to buy in your entire life. And we appreciate you going to the website to do that because we actually get a nickel and then we can feed the dog.
0: Also, if you're in town, if you're a local or if you're visiting, you can get it at Chaucer's Bookstore. They've been fabulous. They've sold quite a few of our books. And we always like to support our local merchants. Yeah,
2: Chaucer's Books in Santa Barbara is one of the preeminent Uh, independently owned bookstores on the entire West Coast. And you could spend an entire day in there. And while you're there, be sure to pick up our book. Today we're talking to William R. Moses. I know him as Billy Moses because the first time I met him was on Falcon Crest. Uh, He was one of the original cast members. He actually performed in The Vintage Years, which was the original pilot uh, produced by Lorimar and Warner Brothers. And that's the point at which I came in. Uh, And Billy and I worked together for a number of years. Just a fabulous guy. He's got a credit list you cannot believe. He's appeared in, I think, over 500 television episodes, 200 different series, ranging from things like, gosh, where do you start? Cold Case Files, Jane Doe. He's done CSI Miami. He's done The Mentalist, The Secret Life of the American Teenager. A number of television movies, including Killing Daddy. He appeared in uh, Mad Men very recently. Perry Mason, he did all those movies opposite Raymond Burr. He appeared in Melrose Place, the miniseries War and Remembrance, Murder, She Wrote, opposite Angela Lansbury. Gosh, he's worked with everybody. The list
0: goes on. He also has produced...
2: He has, and he's quite a quite a fine writer, and I think we'll be talking about that in our conversation. So it's really an exciting day for us.
0: So let's go to the great Bill, Billy, or William R. Moses. Hi, Bill. How are you?
1: Good. It's been a long time.
0: Boy, time flies, huh?
1: It sure does. It sure does slide, doesn't it? It's, I'm, I'm entirely too young to be this old.
2: In point of fact, I don't think you've changed that much. I mean, I saw you uh, a couple months ago, and you look like the same kid to
1: me.
0: For one thing, uh, we used to know you as Billy.
1: Well, yeah. I, well, I, I studied with Kim Stanley years ago and uh, in my 20s, and she told me, she said, don't let people call you Billy anymore. <laughs> just it, they're they're trying to make you too young and yeah, it's just you're you're a man and it's like, you know, so Well, I can't anyway, anyone you... who knows me knows me as Billy, so but it seems to stick. So now well, I'm going other we, way with Well, we it.
0: knew you way back, so. So, you,
1: so you knew me when. Yeah. That's right. But you
2: but you are professionally William R Moses, right? I am
1: professionally William R Moses because but, there's there's a Bill Moses in the guild and he's an African American stuntman. Uh-huh. So, um, yeah, have a, I, I could be Billy R. Moses, which I was because Earl wanted it that way. Earl Hammer wanted it that way for a while. And then I kind of looked at that and I went, that doesn't look very good. And I said, it better be William R.
2: Well, I think you've transcended whatever the nomenclature would be for you. Uh, w- when I look at your the list of your credits in television <laughs> and film, I don't think there are many guys of any age, forget the fact you're still a young man, Of any age with two to 300 credits, are there? The range is just amazing,
1: right? Yeah, no. I've been fortunate. I've been able to keep going for a long time, and uh, you know, I have noticed that that uh, you know, I mean, when I sort of came on the scene, you know, with, there were three networks, you know, and uh, and it was the, the time of the nighttime soap. You know, a lot of those uh, people who were giant soap opera stars, uh, you know, are, are really not really involved in the industry anymore. Um, you know, so I feel fortunate that I've been able to keep going for a long time. So, and hopefully, we'll keep going for a lot longer.
2: Well, I'm sure you will. You know, at some point. In time in your life, you have to make a decision. I think I'm going to be an actor. How did that all happen?
1: Well, I mean, it's uh, sort of a, you know, (laughs) if you go way, way back, uh, you know, my parents, uh, I grew up in Pasadena, or I didn't really grow up there. The first place I lived was in Pasadena. And my father, Richard Moses, was, in fact, uh, a madman. uh, And a madman really even paralleling the story that's on the show, Madman. Richard was the the senior vice president for McCann Erickson, which was the biggest advertising firm in Southern California, uh, in California actually at that time. And he was a Yale graduate and he had that job at 29 years old and had, in fact, a carnation account, which is one of the storylines that's very much featured in, in Mad Men. Uh, and, um, was a very, very sort of a golden boy. Uh, my parents, uh, I was the youngest of four, and my parents divorced when I was three and a half. Uh, my father moved to New York City and left uh, my brothers and myself out here with my mom. And my mom was essentially a 30-year-old Pasadena housewife who wanted to be an actress. And at that time, went to the Pasadena Playhouse to, to study acting with who was teaching there at that time was Stella Adler. And one of one of the people in the class with her was John Saxon, which uh, you know we have parallels back to to uh, Falcon Crest days.
0: That's right.
1: Uh, uh, yeah. So we, uh, my mom was, you know, went out and became this actress. And when I was a very young boy, my mom was a. Uh, single actress in Hollywood with four boys. And uh, I sort of grew up with the likes of uh, Gene Hackman and Robert Loggia coming to the door to take my mom out to dinner and stuff like that. So That's
0: a real Hollywood scene there.
1: Yeah, it was. And then when I was eight years old, my mom did uh, The Undefeated and starred opposite John Wayne. And so I got to go down and, and see her there. And strangely, my mom was in that movie. And when that movie opened, uh, we were all going to the Curtis School, which was a It's located in a different place now, but at that time it was just sort of a very small little school. Uh, There was a man there named Alfonso Bell who was a widower. His wife had had a brain hemorrhage and died suddenly, and his kids were going to the Curtis School. And Alfonso was very good friends with Duke Wayne and went to the movie.
2: For our audience who may be too young to know, Duke Wayne was John Wayne, probably the the biggest movie star of his generation.
1: Right. Well, they they had been John Wayne and Alfonso had been partners in a house in Acapulco and were long time friends. Alfonso went to the premiere of the movie and and wanted to know who the pretty blonde lady was. And uh, somebody had remarked, "Oh, well, you know, her kids go to the she's single and her kids go to the same school your kids do." And lo and behold, Alfonso showed up at the door one night, and my mom and Alfonso fell in love, and she. Got engaged to him when, when I was 8 and married him when I was 10. I was really raised by Alfonso. When I was growing up, you know, sort of athletics and school was my focus. And Alfonso...
2: Now, now you're uh, going kind of fast. Alfonso Bell, we should note, was a very, very well-known congressman in California.
1: Well, yeah, he had uh, his, his, you know, family is an old-time Los Angeles family. The Bell family is an old-time Los Angeles. City of Bell, City of Bell Gardens and Santa Fe Springs were all originally part of what was a, a Spanish land grant uh, property uh, that came to the Bell family so so your mo- so, so, Bell- your,
2: so your mother this gorgeous actress Mary McCargo uh, she caught the eye of one of the most prominent guys in the state basically
1: yes he'd run for he he was at that time a seven term U.S. Congressman, he'd run for the mayor of Los Angeles twice. What a His story. father Gee. was was the founder of Bel Air. I mean, the Bell family was drilling for water in the 1920s and hit uh, Union Oil Number One. So, um, I'll, tra- yeah. I'll trade water
2: for oil any day. <laughs>
1: right. So, I mean, what happened was when they when they hit oil, the the well blew out. And it, it melted, uh, it was almost a mile away from where the ranch house was. It melted all the paint on the, on, on the ranch house and, and it, from the, the blast did. And they couldn't live there anymore. So Alfonso Sr. bought a tract of land west of Beverly Hills that went all the way to the Sepulveda Pass, uh, and wanted to develop a, develop it as a high-priced real estate. It's now currently what they call Bel Air, so. Oh, oh, that little town! No, right, right, yeah, right.
0: Your mom must have been something else.
1: You know, my mom had this knack. Uh, you know, wherever, whatever room my mom walked into, and I can remember this my whole life. Whatever room my my mom walked into, uh, all eyes went to her. She just commanded stage and was a very larger than life personality. She was sort of. She was a real Miss Malaprop, you know, and she say, oh, you know, I remember her being at the, at the L.A. Tennis Club and going into the men's section where the men were playing cards, men were playing cards, and she looked at all the men who were there sitting there playing poker or pinochle or whatever they were playing, and she goes, oh, it's so nice to be in the inner sanctimonious room. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so was it your mother's theatricality and her show business interest that stimulated yours?
1: I grew up, you know, I went to the... The Harvard, it was now called Harvard West, I went to Harvard School in, in Los Angeles, which was a prep school. My focus, Alfonso really wanted me to go into politics, be a lawyer and then go into politics, which is really what I thought I wanted to do. Growing up, my, my focus was school and then I, I loved playing sports. I was a basketball player, I was all CIF in high school and was really sort of thought, you know, thought, well, what I want to do is go to college and play basketball and then go to law school and then run for office, you know. I went into college thinking that, and then I went east to what 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 they call one of the poison ivies. Uh, the, which are the poison ivies would be Wesleyan, Williams, and Amherst. And I went to Wesleyan University, and it was a great school. But I got there and started started to realize that one that basketball, which is, had been sort of the center of my universe, it just wasn't what it once was. And also, I started to realize that hey, I'm going to this great school. And everybody's happy about where I'm going, but I'm not really that happy, and I'm not sure that this is what I want to be. So I came back to Los Angeles and told my parents that I said, I just don't think I went to the right place. And they said, that's fine. You, you know, you you can stay with us, but you'll have to work. And so I started working as an apprentice carpenter and doing construction work and apprenticed with a guy named Ernie Lindbergh, who had, his claim to fame was that he had previously been Harrison Ford's partner. <laughs> You know, and uh, so I started working with Ernie and you know working hard and kind of liking it and I was at a party one night this guy came up to me and he goes God you look a lot like this uh, guy Harry Moses did about five years ago and I said well there's a reason for that he's my brother I'm his younger brother and he goes oh I'm his commercial agent you know have you acted and I I, I don't know what got into me and I said yeah of course <laughs> <laughs> and he goes well would you like to go on commercial auditions and I went sure just on a lark and a week later i got a sprite commercial strangely the person in the sprite commercial with with me that starred opposite me in the sprite commercial was jamie rose
0: oh that's Um, funny
1: wow yeah so um they needed somebody who could ride horses and i had spent a lot of time with my dad who was sort of an old cowboy riding horses and was very familiar with horses so you know like most actors they say can you ride horses and they whether they can or they can't they always say yes in my case i actually could so i got the job and uh, got in front of the camera the the first time and it was you know horrible and wonderful and it was sort of like flying and falling all of these things all at once and i don't think i was particularly good but i got i was kind of interested
2: and at this point you had zero training
1: at this point, I had had zero training. I had done one play in high school was not very good at it. I had zero training. Probably wasn't very good in the Sprite commercial, even with no dialogue. I was very self-conscious. Do you remember I,
0: what your mom thought about that?
1: She was totally fine with it and had no problem with it whatsoever. My dad didn't like it and hated it that I had started to do this. And It was like, well, look, Dad, I'm going to go back to school. I'm just going to do this to make some spending money and... Uh, So I went back to USC and started going school year round. I would take all my classes. I lived in Westwood with all my friends who went to UCLA. But I would drive down to USC first thing in the morning and take all my classes. I'd take the earliest classes and I'd try to be done by noon so I could go to commercial auditions in the afternoon. And between my sophomore, my freshman, and my junior year, I did like 18 commercials. In those days, you know, there would be, you know, they'd have a commercial call and they'd bring in 30 or 40 guys. And then the callback, we'd be down to three. And, you know, I was blond haired and blue-eyed and athletic, and, you know, there was a lot of market for that type of thing. These days, you know, I mean, for a commercial, that same type of commercial, rather than 40 guys, it would be 400 or 500 with a callback at 50 or 60. I mean, it's a whole different, and there'll be three or four callbacks. It's a whole different Sort of world out there. What happened was I started to get some commercials pretty regularly and started making some nice money. And then I, what I did do was I snuck around to professional acting classes at night. I remember meeting Jeff Corey the first time and he was just entirely too scary. Uh, I lasted about three weeks in his class. But he I was going
2: to say, it. Jeff Corey is like a legend.
1: Someone had said you should. Talk to him about his class, and and he said, "Well, I can meet you on Wednesday at one o'clock, and such and such an address." And I said, "Oh, I think I can be there." And he goes, "You think you can be there?" And it was like, uh, uh, "No, no, uh, I can be there. I can be there." Uh, you know. And then I met with him and, and went to the class for a while, but he just was too intimidating. <laughs> he was too intimidating. And as I was going into my senior year at USC. I auditioned for a little movie about uh, a high school football player called Choices, and I got it. Demi Moore was cast to play my sister in the movie, so I got to work professionally for the first time with dialogue and everything with quite a good director, and that was really helpful. And then while I was finishing up the last week of that movie, Doris Saba, who was then at Lorimar, said there was a pilot called The Vintage Year. So I went and met Doris, and she said, wow, you're really kind of really right for this role, this one role in here.
0: Now, Bill, Bill how old were you?
1: I was uh, 20 years old. I was wow. 20 years old when when I, I read for that. And, and if, I, if
2: I'm understanding this correctly, you had only had one experience in front of a camera with real dialogue.
1: I had only had one experience in front of a camera with real dialogue. Okay. That's correct. All right. yeah, yeah, so I went in, read for Doris, and Doris liked me, and I kept going back, and then I met Earl, and Earl liked me, and then we ended up making the pilot for the vintage Years, which later became Falcon Crest. You know, after it was recast and retooled, and I how I survived all that retooling.
2: How did that feel working, <clears throat> being cast in a show that was a major effort on the part of CBS and Lorimar? to produce a hit that would parallel Dallas, which was the number one show at the time. And you're thrown into a cast of serious professionals. I mean, Robert Foxworth, Susan Sullivan, Jane Wyman. These are major acting talents, and you're 20 years old.
1: (laughs) I remember I was majoring in international relations at USC, and I had to have my agent write a note to my professor Signed by the network, so I could screen test at CBS. Oh my! So I could God. miss my final wow. <laughs> and reschedule my final. You know, there were kind of two iterations of it. Which was we did the pilot, which was the vintage years, and that was originally uh, Clue Gulager and Samantha Agarp. and they were later replaced by Robert Foxworth and Susan Sullivan. And both experiences with both of them were amazing. Um, but the one that I can speak to most of all, because that's what the public would know, would be working with Susan, Robert, and Jane. You know, my training w- was really given to me by the professionals I got to work with and and by the fine examples that they they showed me, particularly Susan and Robert. In particular, when I first started out on the show, Robert was very, very kind to me and very, very patient with me. Then also to watch them as models in terms of their professionalism and, their, and the way that they were prepared. And then, you know, and then the other part was, you know, we had the two sides of the family. We had the Gioberti side and we had the uh, the Angela side. So I didn't work as much with Jane and Jane had particularly taken had sparked to Lorenzo. I don't know that she was any tougher on me than she was on Lorenzo. I think she was more patient with Lorenzo because she had like sort of a history through Fernando. With, with Lorenzo and Arlene, you know what I mean? But with me, she, she was quite tough and, and not extraordinarily patient. And her requirements were that you're always on time, that you're always prepared, and that you're always polite to the crew, and that you're always professional. And, you know, I think that she thought I was a dumb, know-nothing kid, which really I was. But years after, so I had done the, the Rock Hudson story, which at that time in 1987 was, you know, to play, a, I played Mark Christian, to play a homosexual character on network television at that time was... Was huge. It, it really hadn't been done. Right. Yeah, it hadn't been done. And, and my dad, who was, you know very old school and not particularly enlightened in that area you know for him it was sort of like a, must been a shock through a lot of changes <laughs> It's a changing it world Put him into shock essentially <laughs> yeah but after the thing had aired jane called me really uh, called me out of the blue and, and said i just want you to know that i've been watching what you're doing and i'm so proud of you and it was really sort of a really lovely full circle event with her nice and, nice uh, that she had In her kind of stern way, had actually been kind of watching me as an actor and watching that process for me. Well, that's quite a compliment,
0: Uh, because those of us who uh, knew Jane Wyman, uh, she was not one to give a compliment easily unless you earned it.
1: It was, you know, kind of a big moment, (laughs) a very surprising moment, but uh, it was it was nice. That was certainly a nice moment.
2: So, so so Falcon Crest was really an enormous break for you as a twenty year old. Tell us what the, I mean, you were on the show for, what, six years?
1: I did, yeah, I did 139 episodes. The thing that, you know, youth is wasted on the young, we averaged a 37 share so on a Friday night. (laughs) That was our average. So more than 40 million people were watching on a Friday night. Now a a hit show is 15 share. I mean, it's a hit show. So, I mean, it's a whole different thing because there's so many more outlets now and not as the concentration of viewership isn't. So television was really... A powerful medium, uh, and a really a medium that really got out there. It's not that it isn't now; it's just different. It was really during that period, while I was working on Falcon Crest, that the first cable contracts were negotiated with the Screen Actors Guild, and and all of that. It was it was the end of a certain era in television.
2: At the time, none of us realized just how powerful those moments were, and for you in particular, it set you on a kind of a meteoric, heartthrob career path.
1: I don't think I was old enough or mature enough to really understand what it was that was happening.
0: So, Bill, I'm just curious, when Falcon Chris became a big hit and you were obviously a big part of the show, what was your dad saying at this time?
1: By that time, I was living on my own and paying my own bills and taking care of it, and I think that he thought it was a flight of fancy. I mean, mm-hmm. it wasn't really until, I don't know, I mean, many years later, I did a little independent movie called The Cactus Kid, which was about a father and son, uh, and the father's a cop, and he finds out his son is terminally ill, and his son's dying wish is to rob a bank like his cartoon character, his favorite cartoon character, The Cactus Kid. So it's essentially a, it's a father and son road picture, where the father actually engineers to rob a bank for his son, his dying son. And then they they hightail it to Mexico. And it was a movie that not a lot of people saw, but it it was really after my dad went to that movie and saw that movie. And I must have been 38 or 39 years old when he said, you know, I know I've given you a lot of hard time about this, but you're really an actor. I I really am totally on board now. By that time, (laughs) I've been there for 20 years. (laughs) So, So... So I guess it Falcon Crest. I thought he thought was a pretty uh, yeah. well better,
2: better late kind of than never, thing. right? So Falcon Crest was a tremendous run, six years. But you left early.
1: You know the the thing that that we talked about, which was that that the soap behind the soap. You know the soap about the making of the soap is almost more fascinating than the soap. Yeah. Um. Because of, Because of the politics, the the politics and the amount of money that was being thrown around and uh, in the case of Falcon Crest you know the soap opera genre had sort of peaked uh, around season 5 and then with the introduction of Miami Vice the genre as a whole started to have see some decline it was in that period where there were a lot of changeovers in writing uh, and showrunners and there was a lot of uh, internal turmoil within the show
2: how does the cast become involved in all of that i mean i always tried very hard to insulate actors from the drama uh, of the writing staff or the network i mean you guys had enough to do
1: in my case um it was that the the writing just it had all of a sudden we weren't making the same show we were we're rather than making Falcon Crest, which had its own sort of identity as a soap opera, and it had some aspects that were different from other soap operas that I thought were quite wonderful and made it distinct. I think we started trying to make a show that was counter programming to Miami Vice. And in doing that we were losing in, in my case it just the, the writing I, I felt wasn't wasn't as good. And in in my you know, immaturity, and in my youth, I said, you know, I thought I was speaking to a reporter off the record, and and it wasn't, and it got in, uh, you know, it it got published, and uh, I got in a lot of trouble. (laughs) So, so, you know, when that that became part of it. Uh, By the time I'd left, I I was fortunate enough to, you know, six months after that, I I, I landed uh, Mystic Pizza, and uh, had all of a sudden, uh, I had I had done a film that I was really excited about and really proud of,
2: which brought you into the whole Perry Mason orbit.
1: That was probably the most fun job I've ever had. In, in that we would make between three and six movies a year, so we'd work for a month and be off for a month, and then work for another month, and we shot them all in Denver. And I had a full time apartment in Denver, and and Raymond and I, um, I had such a wonderful relationship with him. He was so such a complicated kind of difficult personality but the two of us just really got along we really had a uh, it was a very good uh, professional relationship but also just a friendship he he's a guy I, I really miss i think about the fifth movie in nbc had been happy with the ratings of the movies and they, they decided to reward us by having us shoot of one of the movies in paris and oh, that um, must have been nice so spent, that was nice yeah i had a you know, they stayed at the Royal Monceau and had a suite at the Royal Monceau and, and worked, they brought me in a week early and then worked for, you know, five weeks on the movie and, and stayed afterwards and actually turned 30 in in Paris with the crew, with the crew who I'd become great friends with. On the last night of the shoot, you know, I went up to, I bought Raymond a bottle of champagne and I went up to his suite and I knocked on his door and I and I said, this is for you, thank you, this has been great, What a what a great experience. And he, you know, he said, big guy just physically opposing kind of man and he he opened the door and looked at me and he took the champagne goes oh that's very nice he stared at me he goes i want you to know something you were born in the wrong year what does that mean you were (laughs) you were born in the wrong year and then he shuts the door in my face (laughs) i don't (laughs) okay that's the end of my experience with him in, in in paris and then i stayed an extra week and the production company sent a limo to take me to the to, to the airport. The limo driver, who had been Raymond's limo driver when when he was in Paris, he goes, "Mr. Burr had me look all day long for a bottle of port from the year 1959, the year you were born." But there was no there was a freeze. There was no port that year. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you were born two in months the wrong later. Way. We're in Denver and we're <laughs> getting ready to roll on our first scene. And they go, "Speed." And just before they called, uh, Mark, I leaned down to Raymond, I'm standing behind the desk, and I leaned down to him and I go, I know why I was born in the wrong year. And he laughed for fifteen minutes straight. he thought that was the greatest thing in the world, but I figured that out and that and that I answered his question two months later. He was just that kind of guy who was just he, he was really an interesting, interesting person really yeah, it so, it story. sounds
2: like you've had the opportunity to have some wonderful mentors as an actor. Let me ask you this question for people who have not had your great success. What do you see as the difference between acting for television and acting in a feature film like Mystic Pizza. How is that experience different?
1: You know, it's changing. It's changing all the time now because television, particularly premium cable, has become such a great medium. So the differences are less. And there used to be a great difference between the two, um, between television acting and film acting. And, And now I'm not so sure that that's true. Primarily the difference in those days was that you know a television screen was you know if you had a big television screen it was 35 inches and a movie screens 30 feet so you really have to be the the moments are very internal you have to feel the moment and and wait on the moment It's a more deliberate kind of approach a more uh waiting for the actual impulse of the line to come to you because if one if you don't it will read false on a big screen and second, you're not constrained by we got to you know we need this act to be twelve and a half minutes because we got to place a commercial, so we need to pace up the scene, you know. And also in the, at that time in in 1987 to develop the script for Minister Pizza from the the original script that Amy Holden Jones wrote, in the, and by the time it went through the Sam Goldman Company and five different writers and rewrites and polishes they spent two years on the script. The script was more, it had more time to be honed than, than a, the traditional television script would have been in those days. So that was the difference then. The, the difference now, I, I think, is less and less and less, and it's sort of gone the uh, other way. When you look at the real premium cable shows, you know, The Homelands and The, uh, the Mad Men, and those are original scripts written by fabulous writers with unique stories, and, and they're given some time to shoot them. And and also, they're not, because it's on premium cable, but constrained by, by television, and, and they're not constrained in, in the big features now. You, you know, you're seeing more more blue screen, which is special effects, more car tra- chases, more explosions, more things that it designed to get skateboard riding 14 and 15-year-old boys into the theater than, <laughs> than really story-driven material. I mean, sort of reverse now, the direction. It's not to say that you don't see that in film, but... Seems to me, based on what I'm seeing, which is that that story-driven material, I think there's more opportunity in television now. Yeah, there's been, there's been quite there a is. paradigm shift. There's no doubt.
0: At what mm. point did you decide you wanted to produce?
1: Producing is, um, you know, I had done that. I worked a lot for this man Pierre David, who who does a lot of these uh, thriller movies for a Lifetime, and. Um, that became uh, part of the package that we did when I four or five movies into it, where I got to get producing credit uh, on, on some of these features because of the way he structured the deal, and also because we had had developed enough of a relationship. You know, Pierre was a very hands-on producer, but there are sometimes when he's not there, and then in certain instances, um, you know, if the producer isn't there, you you know who's next making decisions, and Pierre. Was, our sensibilities were enough so that he felt confident enough to let me have that, and uh, you know, always taking a second position to him. But but if he wasn't there, then I then I I would have some latitude in terms of you know let's shoot this scene rather than that scene, and let's you know just, just I had some latitude that way. So that's how that originally happened. And as it's going forward, you know, <clears throat> at this point, I don't know how many thousands of scripts I've read and how many times I've been in front of a camera. And I, I understand the, the process of filmmaking and, and really love it.
0: Do you have a preference, television acting, motion picture acting, or stage work? Is, is there one that you favor more well, than the other? Well,
1: no, I, I, the answer is I like good acting. And I don't really care if it's on film or television or stage. I, I just like it when you can catch the wave and really really be in the moment and really, you know, the, you know, the, the acting teacher that I had years ago was Kim Stanley, who was, you know, part of the original core group of, of the actor's studio and was there with Strasberg and Haley Kazan and was really at the formation of, of what, what has become the method in, in, in American acting circles, you know, and what she would say to me privately behind closed doors is she would say, stop planning what you're going to do in the scene. Just be in the scene moment and moment to moment. Because if you stay with it moment to moment, it's going to take you someplace you never knew you could go. I didn't understand that in my twenties. In my fifties, that's starting to make some sense. And and in my fifties, it's starting to make some life sense in terms of the places that the the industry has taken me and and the, the, unexpectedly and and doing unexpected things. You know, what I mean, like in July, I got to go to Berlin to go work on ho- Homeland. I mean, it's just I got to go shoot, fly from Los Angeles to Ber- Berlin to shoot one scene with Mandy Patinkin. And It's like. I could have never really imagined that. I yeah. Mean,
2: that would- Let me ask you this, kind of an important question for much of our audience, many of whom aspire to follow in your footsteps. What would you suggest someone who is 18 years old going to, let's say USC? Maybe mm-hmm. they're not playing basketball, but they want to become the next William R. Moses. What advice do you give them?
1: The advice that that I would that I would say was what Larry Moss said to me years ago, which is that uh, you know you have to love the craft more than the pitfalls of the career and you have to love the craft so much that you're willing to deal with whatever the ups and downs of it, of, of our, of the career. And the career is, the business side of acting is not is hard. It's very, very hard. It is a very, very hard, hard road filled with a lot of rejection, but, The only way to overcome that is to love the work more than you hate the rejection. The corollary is is in these days, culture is changing. It's been proven that you can have stardom with celebrity. (laughs) It used to be that stardom came with an ability and now celebrity is sort of a different thing. And you have to determine in yourself whether you're in love with the actual craft of acting or if you're in love with celebrity. If you're in love with celebrity, it's not the career for you because that's not the be-all and end-all. It's not that. It's something else.
2: Well, Bill, I can't tell you how much we appreciate you doing this.
1: Oh, thank you.
2: I've always been impressed with what I've seen as a, a profound depth and a, and a maturity well beyond your years. And I think you've conveyed that here in our conversation. And I just want to tell you how much we appreciate you doing this. And I think you're going to be an inspiration to many of our listeners. Any? Can you give us any hint what you're working on now or what current projects or, or future stuff we should be looking for?
1: Well, you know, right now I'm, I'm, I'm looking for... For the next one, I'm, I'm going to work on a little independent uh, tomorrow night for a friend, but that's uh, that's probably you know that's that's probably a below the radar kind of thing. And then I know this movie I did in Africa last year. I think it's been nominated for several awards in Africa on the continent. So I think they're doing a big award ceremony in Los Angeles. So I'm 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 going to be probably the only white actor at the African award ceremony. <laughs> and that's
2: and, and, the, and the name of that and the name of that picture is Olibiri. Oh.
1: All the Berry retold. Yeah. And, uh, that's great. been nominated for best picture on the continent. And the director got a best director nomination.
2: All right, but, man. But, yeah. Thanks again for doing this. All right. Good talking and, to you. And, Thank you know, I never knew you were such a great basketball player. Next time you and I get together for lunch, I'm bringing a ball. And we're having a free throw contest to see who pays.
1: Okay. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> All right, Bill, you take <laughs> thank care. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Bye. Good talking to you. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye.
2: That was terrific. It's just like talking to the guy when he was twenty years old.
0: It's like going back to the old Falcon Crest days. Really,
2: really, whatever. he's
0: really done really incredible and, things and, with his career. Don't and he's he? a
2: very thoughtful guy. I mean, I mean, very deep.
0: I'm not quite sure what name he wants to be called these days. William R Moses okay. is his professional name. Okay, but he, we know him as Billy. Billy. I remember Billy and Lorenzo Lamas on the show, and they looked like perfect bookends on that show.
2: They're a great tag team, that's for sure. They are. Hey, before we go, you know, now and then Suzanne and I mention things that we've seen on television or in the movies that are kind of seminal and very important. And I think really uh, a valuable thing for people to see who are interested in the industry. We happened to catch something last week on Netflix. It's a documentary called Casting By. And it's the story of Marion Doherty, who is the preeminent casting director. In the 60s, 70s, and 80s, responsible for so many major careers. And I just recommend, if you're a Netflix subscriber, take a look at the documentary, Casting By. You'll learn a lot about the real truth behind the business.
0: It was riveting. It really was.
2: It was terrific. And today, I also want to thank all the fabulous people who have given us these wonderful reviews. At iTunes, you know those reviews really do help. They add up, and they bring a lot more listeners to the podcast. I, I'm a little verklempt, if you will, the nice things people have said about this podcast, including uh, Madame, Madame KDF, Paladin2000. These are their monikers in iTunes. Uh, Great insights, Zeekness, and Adrian M1. Just want to thank you guys for those great reviews. And for those of you who have not yet posted a review, it's a real simple thing to do. Just go to your iTunes account, check out our podcast, and click uh, Reviews, and give us that five-star rating.
0: Just want to mention our book again, Where Hollywood Hides Celebrities in Paradise. Soon to be in soft cover, a great gift or a great read.
2: Another of our great sponsors you really should check out is one eight hundred flowers dot com. Go to oh, our Oh yes, flowers
0: dot com. That's right. a great idea. One
2: eight hundred flowers dot com has a banner on our website and they are the preeminent floral delivery, really nationwide. Great value, great service.
0: So this is Suzanne Herrera McCullough. And Bob McCullough. And we'll see you at the movies. Today's music is provided by Chance McCullough. You can find more of his original soundtracks at chancemccullough.com.
1: That from Coney They come
0: from Chillicothe's and Paduca's with their bazookas to get their names up in lights. All armed
1: with photos from local rotos with their hair in ribbons.
2: Hurry for Hollywood You have no way of knowing who'll make good Maybe you'll be
0: another Papa Dion your your be me on If you get lucky you could Yes, buddy, you'll arrive If you can top his five hurry for Hollywood Hooray for Hollywood
1: can do with your heart